What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 50 of Dart Against Humanity. A few things I want to get out the way. Um, I just got word a few days ago that Dart Against Humanity has been added to iHeartRadio. That makes it uh, my 26th uh, podcast distributor that it's available on. Uh, I've been attempting to get it added to Deezer. It's been a frustrating experience. I'm going to continue to try. Hopefully it gets added to Deezer by the end of June. Uh, In any event, one of the things that I did very recently... I believe it went up Wednesday. Uh, For DJ Booth, I did a rap research piece. It was supposed to take another uh, direction. I believe I mentioned this. Um, I hoped that I would resolve the question of when was the release date of MF Doom's Operation Doomsday. That didn't happen, so I had to pivot. And I instead made it a piece where it offered some resources for journalists, writers, and amateurs, readers alike to dispel or disprove any Twitter account or journalist, writer, Facebook post that claimed that a single or an album was released on this date. What I've been doing lately is I've been using my phone using the video um uh, um capabilities and going to these different resources or I just take screenshots whichever I'm doing at the time and I step by step to talk you through or break down how this could not have been possible I did a lot of it in hopes to like shame people into maybe actually doing research or maybe at least delete the post You can't really do that to albumism because albumism does not respond to anything that you post. Um, They don't delete posts. They don't do anything. So albumism made the mistake yesterday of saying that it was June 6th, 1989, which is Wikipedia false information, was the 30th anniversary of uh, Gangstar's debut album, No More Mr. Nice Guy. No, it actually was released March 7th, 1989. Then they said that Nana Cherry's Raw Like Sushi was released on June 5th, 1989. It actually was released uh, June 12th in the UK, June 13th, 1989 here. I took a screenshot of the um, the actual ad and sent it to them. Heard nothing. Then they claimed that June 7th, 1988 was the release date of... Audio 2's um, What More Can I Say album, I disproved that. I showed them proof that on May 14th, 1988, both it and MC Light's um, Light is a Rock album had an ad saying the albums were available already by May 14th, 1988, and they entered the black music charts on May 28th, 1988, both albums. That video was up. So, heard nothing from albumism, but the videos made their way around the internet, let people know I was serious. And I did finally narrow down, I believe I narrowed down uh, the release date of 
Operation Doomsday yesterday uh, morning. After a long search through the Wayback Machine and uh, going through trying to figure out why it didn't show up on CMJ, on the CMJ um, reports, because CMJ reports are pretty accurate. But the problem is that uh, it looks like it might have been released November 9th, 1999. And the reason why it wouldn't have shown up is because if you go back and you look through CMJ, you'll discover that sometimes an independent album takes months to be reported. And unfortunately, uh, Bobito was pretty much doing everything as a one man, as a one man um, operation, which means that it was on him to report to CMJ ahead of time when he's responsible for getting the albums. Well, first of all, the only place you could have bought it online was from the Fondulum Superstore, which was administered by Sandbox Automatic. It was like the exclusive place to get it, I, which is insane, right? So that will also explain why I couldn't find it when I used the Wayback Machine to go through undergroundhiphop.com, what have you. It makes sense. Hip-hop site listed it as one of the um, top 10 best independent albums of 1999 and the list was sourced from when you go to the Wayback Machine November 11th 1999 and the reason why I couldn't find the CMJ is because I also found that they eliminated reports around the Thanksgiving holiday and then they jumped and said the next reports will be December 10th to 14th and then they spent the next the end of December just putting together their um end of um 1999 uh list and it was sourced with a whole bunch of um staff top album picks and from artists and it was just page after page after page of that and if I'm correct that means that these people were sending those in during November before the album was possibly even out or they heard it so it wasn't on anybody's list which explains a lot and the only time you actually see it listed on anybody's um anything especially in cmj is in may the may 2000 issue and what it is is it shares and i've clearly done a lot of research i it shares a review with KMD's Black Bastards, which I think came out. Well, when I look at um, all the different sites, it shows up for the May 6th, 2000 update. So I'm guessing it dropped either early May 2000 or end of April 2000. I'm going to find, like lock down the exact date, but that's when people started giving it attention. Apparently it had been out, but it wasn't widespread and also, I'd figured out why it hadn't been reported. Anyways, um, it was just like really frustrating for me to try to lock down exactly what had happened. But so far, um, the article that I wrote for um, DJ Booth, which was pretty much me breaking down how there is a serious problem in this space in terms of... Um, research in regards especially to rap because it's not valued and also because the speed of real-time social media and a 24-hour um news cycle 
makes it so that, and also I believe economics play a part in it, make it so that it's not worth it for people to actually take the time and research articles. Just, you see a release date, you have your opportunity, you know you'll get a green light to get your article up or get your piece up because it's an anniversary piece and that brings in the clicks and that's going to get the eyes and the engagement. So you write the piece without doing actual research. And the funny thing is I've pointed out several times that people tend to use Wikipedia as their um. They don't do any actual research. They just go straight to Wikipedia. And I've broken down, I believe, this entire week, right after the joint came out on Wednesday, that Wikipedia is super unreliable. I broke down what happened with if you trusted Wikipedia and the dates that they have posted for uh, singles, for, for instance, um, J. Ruta Damages, the sun, rise, the sun Rises in the East. They have the dates for all the singles wrong. And you can dispel them if you just put in something simple like uh, J. Rue the Damager Billboard Chart History. And you go to when it peaked. And then you go back from when it peaked and just go back, 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 back. And if you actually read the article, there's a link to a, a digital database of um, Billboard magazines between... It really gets started up between 1936 and 2014. I use it basically for like the late 70s um, all the way up to like the late 90s. And then like I also use it with the late 90s. I especially uh, like to focus on CMJ because CMJ is very specific and it tells you uh, release dates for 12 inches. And it actually has like information there about things that happened in the scene if you've ever gone to like the cmj new music um monthly and weekly on uh, using google books you actually see what i'm talking about but it's helped me nail down a whole lot of i do articles um i believe it's called under ind independent as fuck or underground as fuck um so i did part one and i did part two Part one was 20 albums from 1997. Part two was 25 albums from 1998. And I'm going to do part three. And part three will be uh, 25 albums from 1999. And I do honorable mentions too. Just to show you like how many important underground albums were out. Independent rap albums were out. And I think a big piece of that too is um the compilations. And I just do that just to show every. And what ends up happening is that people actually keep going back to that as a resource itself. Because I have the release dates there. And I have to do so much work to figure out release dates. And what's funny is that when I started doing it, um, I can easier, I, 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 have, I can much easier, it's much easier for me to find accurate release dates than when I began. Again, over the last three years, this has been a labor-intensive thing that I've done, and it's something that I've like gotten better and better at strictly through repetition. And now I know like what to anticipate. And here's another thing. I can do it well because I actually know the landscape of the entire industry at the time or, or that particular landscape of independent and mainstream rap 
in those years, 96, 97, 98, 99. I know what's happening. You know, I know what should be out. I know what's missing. I know this album got pushed back two months. I know this album, uh, Big Cap and Funk Master Flex the Tunnel. I remember it came out in December. I remember when the Ill Bomb single came out. You know, I remember when this, I remember what happened with um, Black Elvis Lost in Space. That there was an issue with printing uh, with the vinyl that made the album get pushed back a couple of months. Because uh, apparently what happened was they had A-sides and B-sides and... One thing printed uh went uh printed the beast B side twice or something like that. So they had to go back and ship it and it was on a major label and uh, it was making uh Cool Keith really pissed off that his album was delayed and then he complained once his album did come out because he felt like the label didn't promote it enough. I remember all that stuff happening. Because I was actually working in and around record stores. I was actually at Hip Zeppy around that time. But like I was still in and around record stores. I had friends that work at record stores. I had friends that worked at buyers of record stores. I was frequent. There were plenty of them. This is before the decline really began. So it was like I was fr- still frequenting them. You know, the uh, P2P era hadn't officially started destroying everything. That that It, it happened though. So, um... That was just like an unfortunate event. But the f- the response has been overwhelming. It's done really well. The numbers have been great. Uh, and as you know, I'm somebody who earlier on in this podcast talked a lot about I don't like looking at numbers because comparison is the thief of joy or whatever. But as more and more time progressed, I realized that I had to stop looking at it that way and had to actually treat this podcast i've said it last podcast like what it was an actual thing that people listen to and i have to be an adult and a professional about it like when i told everybody that i was finally going to pick a date and a time that i uploaded episodes as opposed to doing every three to five days you know uh recently i just saw um the Black Godfather on Netflix, the story of Clarence event. And um, one thing that he stresses, everything is about numbers. I'm somebody who believes in the art and the culture, and I don't like to focus on numbers or things like that to give me validation or whatever, but I'm whole-brained. So I can separate my personal feelings and my uh what I'd like for things to be with the reality of business and marketing. No one's going to do business with you unless it's um, mutually beneficial. And when you come to the table, you have to come to the table with something solid and something tangible. And you have to prove that you have reach and you actually know what you're talking about. This is why I've been able to actually do things and move around in different spaces because what I do with writing has a different purpose and it, it is a ends towards a different means. And I would like to clean up the part of journalism and I would like to actually have it be more about the art and the culture. But also in order for that to happen, when I do these pieces, I have to prove that people read this shit. 
Look at the numbers. Look at the engagement. Look at this. So people are like, yo, why did you post that thing up after you did this and you showed the numbers and all this other stuff? And this is only after six hours. And I was like, because I have to prove that there's value in this so that the next person, when you look at like Gino, when he does um uh when he when he does his micro chops, he tells you about my engagement is rose from this to this to this to this to this because he's trying to dispel the bullshit um, that there's a narrative going around that long form writing about art and culture and music doesn't reach an audience and isn't worthy of monetary compensation or is not going to get the eyes of people and we're proving it wrong every time we write an article and the numbers go through the roof and we get this engagement over weeks and weeks and weeks over a piece that we wrote so it's very important to change that perception but yes on um, the black godfather about Clarice Avant's um, career it's on Netflix. A lot of you saw him in the um, Searching for Sugar Man documentary, and it cr- cracked me up. Yeah, huge truck. That cracked me up because I was like, do these people know? The man who, from South Africa was interviewing him. Does he know who he's talking to right now? What a legend he's talking to? And he's talking to him about Rodriguez, whose two albums, which were released on Sussex, sold nothing. And he's like, where did the money go? Not realizing that Sussex hasn't existed for a long time long time anyways so uh now what i actually want to get into is um tomorrow will be the 35th anniversary of the now considered classic hip-hop film beach street now beach street okay so as you know, I did uh, Breaking Down Breaking. That was an earlier podcast episode. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen. Breaking was released May 4th, 1984. It followed uh, Breaking and Entering, which was made by Roxbury legend um, Topper Carew, a documentary about the L.A. Um, hip-hop scene. So Breaking was essentially the major studio film version of that but to appeal to a wider audience it succeeded it was one of the biggest box office successes of the summer it had a soundtrack that went platinum it had singles that became huge hits and at the time in 1984 music video was just popping off where there were syndicated music video shows all over the place so you didn't need to have MTV, MTV to see videos. Not like, like 82, 83, 81. Everybody was seeing videos from video shows. And one of the things on those video shows that they showed to death was Ain't no stopping us, no stopping Ollie and Jerry or 99 and a half won't do, which is the other hit from the breaking soundtrack. And there would be huge huge um revenue made from the breaking soundtrack and those singles however when beach street had to come out june 8th 1984 they already had a full month head start so they had to do something they didn't 
and they had to bring something they didn't. And they did. New York hip-hop culture from the Bronx and hopefully authenticity. On the other end, I'm going to get into what happened and what went wrong. And we're back. Dart Against Humanity, episode 50. Now we're going to talk about Beat Street, the king of the beat. You say you're rocking that beat from across the street. Uh-huh. Beat Street is a lesson, too, because uh, you can't let the street beat you. Huh. All right, now here's the problem with Beat Street. Now, Beat Street was pretty much made as a response to the overwhelming... Uh, the overwhelming crowds who saw Wild Style in the theater, I believe on 42nd Street and all over. And there was a stretch where I think Wild Style and Style Wars were shown back to back in the theater. I believe um, Ed Pixor, Ed Pisker actually did a piece about that in um, Hip Hop Family Tree. But in January 1984, PBS, WGBH uh, in Boston, played Style Wars on PBS. Um, shortly after they played it, I don't think that they, I think they played it maybe twice. They stopped playing it and like banned it altogether because people went out, hit the streets and started bombing and doing graffiti and tagging up everything. Not that graph writers didn't exist in Boston, but they just went ham when they saw Style Wars. And it just sparked something in them. It's like it was on from that moment. Now, Beach Street. The thing about Beach Street is there were, if you read the article, there were a after Wild Style and Style Wars come out, first of all, these were on the festival circuit for a while. And they were in the theaters for a minute. And then finally, it ended up on TV at the beginning of um, Style Wars, ended up on TV at the beginning of 84. Now, during this entire stretch, there are people in the scene who've seen the films, who are in, who've seen it, and seen the crowds. And they're like, yo, we have to make a movie off this. So there was a big rush. Um, you had... Canon Films, Canon Films goes and makes breaking, which I discussed. Uh, but Orion Films, Orion Pictures, uh, taps Harry Belafonte to bring this project to the screen. He goes and gets Stan Lathan, director Stan Lathan, who's also mentioned in um, The Black Godfather. Um, and he's like, yo, I need you to direct this film. It's going to be called Street Beat, and it's about hip hoppers in the Bronx. And they come up. He's like, yo, word, cool. So they get people to, I don't know, consult. Uh, they get Blade. I mean, not Blade. They get uh, Blast, but they get um, Phase 2. Phase 2, key guy. If you go back and you watch the um, original trailer for Beach Street with, treach with uh, Treacherous 3 uh, lead guy, uh, cool Mo D rapping kind of like Ice T did for Breaking and then also did for the movie Rapping, which is fucking god awful. You'll see phase two, you'll see an uprock scene in a classroom, which didn't make the film, 
You'll see a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Now, the thing about, again, the thing about Beach Street was that Beach Street was supposed to be authentic hip-hop New York. We're going to see uh, Cool Herc. We're going to see Jazzy J. We're going to see Africa Bambata and Soul Sonic Force. We're going to see Grandmaster um, Melly Mel and the Furious Five. Grandmaster Flash had his own group. Um, Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five. We're going to see... Uh, Rock Steady Crew. We're going to see New York City Breakers. We're going to see Magnificent Force. We're going to see Treacherous Three. We're going to see Lisa Lee, Debbie D, Shaw Rock. We're going to see all of these legendary guys that we never get to see all in the Bronx, all doing hip hop shit. Here's a problem. They're not the main people in the film. Now, uh, the distinction made was that when you saw Wildstyle, which we didn't see, I didn't see Wildstyle until I was an adult. It wasn't available anywhere. Anywhere. Wildstyle had actual hip hoppers trying to act. Even if they couldn't act, it came off better. Simply because that's actually Lee. That's actually Fab Five Freddy. That's actually the Cold Crush brothers. That's actually the Fantastic Five. See what I'm saying? That's actually Busy B. So that's completely different from we got a dude, Guy Rogers, who seems to be using a black scent as a black person. Saying words that we say every day that don't that seem to sound foreign coming out of his mouth and super awkward. When someone says death, when an actor says death or fresh in Beach Street, you're like, yo, this person's never said that fucking word in their life. And you're sitting there like, what's going on? You got fake Puerto Ricans, which is a thing that happened in the 80s, but when you have like an actual Puerto Rican. Next to a fake Puerto Rican. It's like, that guy's Italian. You know? And then you have, like, things happen that don't make sense. For instance, I mentioned this in the article. Right when the joint starts out, they're walking down the street talking, gassing up Rainbow, how ill Rainbow is. Oh, take this picture of this um, train. And in the beginning of the film, they show all these classic trains these classic pieces, these these actual ill, you know, top to bottom joints, and then you see Ramos pieces, and it's like, yo, that shit, that, that shit, that's not spray paint, that's not ill, that looks horrible. It looks like something that like you did with a marker, like somebody who's like you look at that, be like, eh, you gotta work on it, and he's like, yo, Ramos. That's your that's my favorite burner of yours. And I'm like, that shit's trash. So you already can't um what's the word what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um suspend belief. You already can't suspend belief. You already snapped out of it. You're like and then Ramos like, Ramos not nice. And then Ramos in his black book doing what looks super trash. Like I I was in third grade, I think, and I was like, I know kids did do that on like math paper, like Rainbow is supposed to be like ill, right? What's going on here? And they'll say things that sound like nothing a hip hopper's ever said in life. 
I think special. I think double K be in love. Like what? Like it pains you to say that line. Gallant talent like a magic trick. Like you've never rapped in your life. Why are you putting on? Y'all say y'all down with breaking, but that's bullshit. I'm like, yo, why is he doing that? And then when he did his rapping voice, it didn't sound like. Okay, so I guess he was kind of trying to imitate like Curtis Blow. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. But his voice sounded like, and then he would go off beat. And one of the things that people have always talked about, it's working, it's working. And that's something that Africa Bambada used to say for when like they used to hook up the, the speakers or whatever, or take the juice from outside or whatever, like the sound system or whatever, it's working. Matter of fact, if you go back and look at the album cover for, I believe, the first uh, Africa Bambada and the Soul of Sonic Force album, it looks like a um, comic book cover. In the corner where it would be like the Marvel part, it says it's working. That's his trademark line. So when he's saying it, I'm like, is that something they say in the Bronx? Is he? Can he say that? And also another thing, um, this is the early days of um, uh, sponsorship. So Puma had an opportunity, you know, pick a film or whatever to uh, get on, get um, become a part of, and Puma aligned themselves with the project that you know Harry Belafonte got over here. You know what I'm saying at Orion, and if you flipped over the first edition. Of the Beach Street soundtrack, which I actually owned, it has right there Puma as seen in Beach Street. Like this was going to boost Puma. Puma was attaching themselves to this shit. Like yo, we about to get paid. And if you look, you'll notice that everybody's wearing Puma outfits, wearing the Puma joints. They got the Pumas on as they're um dancing. And, you know, dude had the linoleum right there in his room when Lee does his moves or whatever. And then he gets up and high fives um, Coley. And he's like, fresh. And I'm like, dude, that was the worst fresh I've heard in my fucking life. So, okay, another thing that really got me, right, about the film, even early on, was there was the awkward love story between Double K or Kenny and um, the city college student who was played by Ray Don Chong. It seemed really forced. There was um the Strangers in a Strange World song, which is like, why? Why? And I guess that the studio felt like if they didn't have this in here, it would it they needed it to like attract an outside audience. Just like uh you could tell that it was Harry Belafonte's um agenda to try to bridge the acad the black academic world and like mainstream um black diasporic dance community or like the music community with hip hop like a it's connected but it came across more like eh, because okay here's the thing there's the clash when they bring Lee to I can't remember her name was it Rachel and I've seen this movie several times. Uh, when they bring Lee to like the classes rehearsal, whatever, Lee's under the impression that, of course, he's going to be a part of the show. So he's doing the backspin or whatever. They're recording him on camera or whatever. And then they're like, 
yeah, we can't have you in the show. And then that's when Double K goes off and turns into his, goes into his voice. Um, and he's like, y'all just all oh, bullshitting. All oh, y'all just biters. Y'all say y'all down with breaking. And that's bullshit. And it basically is like supposed to show hip hop's rift and its fight with like black academia and the traditional black like media and everything else like that. And, like, that was the culture clash moment. But then, of course, like, she goes to apologize. And then they develop a relationship. And they start growing closer. And he brings her around. And, oh, these are my friends laid up in the yard doing a piece that doesn't look like a fucking piece. It, like, you're just sitting there like, what? And it's like they're filling it in with spray paint. It was like, then how come it looks like that? Like, I thought Rainbow was dope. Like, this shit looks trash. Anyway. And it's so like, and you're just like, what's going on? Yo, Kenny, how she feel? Um, there's just so much happening. And then, okay, one of the things that kills me too is Beach Street is supposed to have these moments, right? That makes it stick out from breaking. Everybody was talking about the scene where uh, homie danced with the broom. That's like one of the things everybody talked about. He danced with the broom when they talked about the battles. I don't know why. They kind of sucked. The battles at the Radiotron when they involved um, Kelly. Like, those battles sucked. They were trash. They were. But everybody talked about them. I didn't get it. But the one thing that Beach Street had up on um, Breakin' was that the battle between Bronx Rockers and Beach Street, which was actually a battle between Rocksteady Crew and New York City Breakers, that is probably the moment everybody remembers for the film. Unfortunately, that's probably the only thing that people took away from the film, which is really sad and unfortunate 35 years down the line. Uh, but when you're talking about moments in the film that everybody remembers, the one thing that everybody came back from the film with was um, the spit and rainbow scene where they both get electrocuted on the third rail now this is supposed to be a really grisly scene it's supposed to be where the emotional the emotional turn happens in the film and this is supposed to be where the crowd um the audience connects and now they see that double k has a different mission rather than just become the hottest dj in the bronx now the idea is he has to have a show honoring his fallen compatriot Ramo. Who wasn't that nice at Graf anyway. Why are they fucking gassing them? Which is another thing that didn't help us. Is trying to get us to like buy into this whole emotional gravitas. The other part is that how Rainbow and Spit died on the third rail. It's supposed to be some shit that hits you hard. Like when um Cornbread got shot. And Cornbread Earl and me. Or when Cochise dies. You know? And Cooley High. This moment had people laughing. Okay? People always talk about Raymo and Spit, but it's kind of tongue, tongue in cheek. Because I was like, yo, y'all see y'all see B Street? Yeah. Spit! Raymo! And then they start shaking, and everybody starts shaking, and people walk by and they laugh. Okay? It's really weird. So that didn't work. And okay, so now the film turns where um, Double K is supposed to be DJing his big 
his big like break, right? And instead of it being what it is, he decides to turn it into a celebration of Ramo's life. And so Beat Street Breakdown, he raps like the first two verses of Beat Street Breakdown and then hands the mic to Grandma to Grandmaster Melly Mel, who spits a fucking ridiculous verse for 1984. Um, please go see the video if you haven't. Um, or if you haven't heard the song, how the hell haven't you? Um, he spits a ridiculous verse. It's like the it's like the president forgot about Earth, like Nagasaki, Hiroshima, like the, the verse is is bananas. Period. And then. Do you believe? What the fuck's going on? Do you believe? What, what are they doing? I said, do you believe? And then Bernard Fowler comes on stage dressed in a, a choir robe. And I'm like, what? what's happening? What are they doing? Why? Why are they doing this? That would have been the perfect way to end it. Now, this is another thing that I will maintain until the day I die. I thought it was a cop out to try to make it so that Special K decides, a Double K, Special K, um, Double K or Kenny decides due to the um what's her name? Hopefully it's Rachel. Uh her influence, he decides to turn the celebration into something that's more uh representative of everyone that everyone could get behind. And this is really Harry Belafonte's fucking influence. And so the last thing is this horrible song, believe it. Where they have like the dancers from City College come out doing this goofy ass dance and then they kick them off the stage and then there's a part that goes break, break and then like the B-boys perform and it's like it tries to bring everything together. Now here's the thing, that idea made sense. When Fab Five Freddy was in the scenes, the downtown scene, he's in the Bronx, he's all over um, the boroughs, going to all these different events, and he's like, in the art world, he's like, yo, all this shit is connected. All this shit is connected. We need to do a film that connects all of these things and put it under the same umbrella as it's all parts, it's all hip-hop. You know, let's do that. And, of course, there's some... um. Critique that when they did the tours overseas, they actually had the double Dutch, they had the double Dutchers, and he didn't have them in um, Wild Style. So they're like, yo, man, you kind of like lost out, missed out an opportunity there. And I think he kind of regrets it um, in retrospect. But like he focused on what he focused on, he had who he had in it. But I felt it was a real cop out. In order to like water it down for a wider audience and like try to make it more palatable for people. Because if he's doing this for his peoples in the Bronx and to honor his boy Ramo, who is a Bronx graph writer, why would you bring in all these unnecessary elements with all these fucking people who didn't know him? For a crowd that's supposed to be hip hoppers. Which brings us more to our point. There's Carmen's theme on the soundtrack. Um, Ruben Blades or Ruben Blades for everybody else who reads it. Jesus Christ. To Carino. It's the scene when like he's moving uh, Carmen out of her apartment into their um, place where they're going to squat. Us Puerto Ricans got to stick together. 
are you all y'all Puerto Ricans? Um, you'll know what I mean if you've seen the film, the scene. But anyway, like, and then like it's the thing where like Ramos' father is yelling at him because he's trash or whatever, and you're not living up to your thing. And it goes back to the opening scene and um Wild Style where Zorro's brother is back from the army and he's like, yo, stop doing this bullshit and become a man. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you mean bullshit? This shit. This bullshit. Like, his father, his father doesn't respect what he does the same way uh, Zorro or um, Lee in the, in the film's brother does. But the difference being is that Lee's or Zorro's girlfriend, Rose, is actually a writer too and from the culture. And she's the one that tells him, like, yo, this jam ain't about you and your peace. There's gonna be rappers there, there's gonna be DJs there. Like it's a whole culture. You're supposed to be highlighting that. You missing out on like you're pointing your finger at the at the sun and you can't block the sun. And if you do that, you'll miss out on all the heavenly glory. And he's like, oh shit, yo, that's dope. And then that's what brings it together. That's completely lost. In the narrative of Beach Street. However, even that being the case, Beach Street falling short, it didn't do well at the box office. It got it it got fucking buried by um breaking. The soundtrack, the Beach Street soundtrack went gold. But the week after the Beach Street soundtrack was certified gold, the breaking soundtrack was certified platinum. Here's here's the other part, right? One film ends up leaving the movie theater around the same time as the other film, but the other film had a month head start and made twice as much money. Ouch. But the huge thing is that what ends up happening is that these films, when they're released on um, video in the fall of 1984... They become, they both end up becoming uh, top rentals for 13 straight weeks each. And the charts on our top rentals charts, I dug through them myself, stop at 40. So they were in, both in the charts for 13 weeks. One bowed out and then break in, ended up in the charts for like the next week or next week or two weeks or yeah, the next week. And then it bowed out. It's insane. 13 weeks is essentially a fourth of the year. A fourth of the year. There's 52 weeks in a year. Okay? So that's three months as a top rental. And back in the days, RIA certified um, uh, rentals is selling over 37 37,500 units which it wasn't for sale you can only rent it or generating 1.5 million dollars in revenue it generated 1.5 million dollars at least in revenue in 13 weeks and it made like 16 million at the box office in like 8 weeks wrap your brain around that and that film has remained a cult classic and a steady rental for the last 35 years, even in digital form. And 
of all those breaking films that came out of that era, and we're talking about um breaking, breaking two, body rock, uh, starring Lorenzo Lamas, fucking horrible film. It's the one that stands up to time the best and age the best. It introduced us to uh Dougie Fresh at the Santa's rap part. Um so yeah. It ended up being the springboard to um a couple weeks later there was a pilot called Graffiti Rock by Michael Holman. And a lot of people that were in Beach Street were in Graffiti Rock. So then that led to like the fat boys blowing up and then the fresh fest happening and it springboarded into like breaking blowing up throughout the summer of 1984 and grabbing the cover of Newsweek the July 2nd 1984 issue and actually the guy on the cover wearing Puma is Lee the guy who played Lee in Beach Street so all these things were necessary for hip hop to take over and invade Hollywood and Madison Avenue. You could go on YouTube and find a Hershey's commercial with people um, breaking in it. You could find a Britannia jeans commercial where everybody's rapping and pop locking. You can find old episodes of Different Strokes where Sam, Danny Cooksey, is pop locking. You can find old episodes of um, Silver Spoons where they decided to add Alfonso Ribeiro and they would go to the hangout where him and this other dude dancing machine would have dance battles and then Rick would be pop locking and shit. All this is initiated by films like Beach Street and unfortunately Breaking and Breaking 2 and unfortunately Body Rock even though it sucked. But anyways, that's that's the thing. Without these films, no matter how corny or cheesy they may be or cringeworthy, Spit! Um, you know, it got us here. So, yay. Oh, yeah, one more thing. Uh, June 14th, I'm going to be speaking at um, Hibernian Hall as part of a panel uh, organized by BAMS Fest. And it's going to be about the state of black music and the arts across Greater Boston. It's going to be happening from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., at Hibernian Hall. You can get tickets at uh BAMS Fest F E S T um dot org backslash events if you're in Boston. If you're not in Boston, I'll tell you about it. Anyway, yeah, man. I just wanna say I appreciate everybody who listens to this podcast and has helped it spread and become what it's become because lord knows i didn't know what the fuck i was doing lord knows i still don't